You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, a podcast with me, Sarah Raven, and my great friend, Arthur Parkinson. And today we are joined by two other friends of mine who are the two chefs who have been to Perch Hill three or four times now, who I completely love, and they are Sarit and Itamar from Honey & Co. I'm sure... Basically, all of you who are foodies will know all about Honey & Co. And the reason that I've got them onto the show today is because they've got a new book out. And a new Honey & Co. book is always a thing of great excitement. (laughs) So welcome to you both. And will you tell us all about Chasing Smoke, your wonderful new book? We would love to. Thanks for having us, first of all. Yes, very much. We we very much missed our annual... uh visit slash pilgrimage to Perch Hill. Yeah, because of stupid is... lockdown, we didn't get our fill of flowers and a beauty and, you know, we feel the need for it for sure. But oh. you're, you're actually oh. coming here in September, but you might not have been informed. That by, no, no, we do. No, we we know, do know we that know. we're coming soon. We do know that we're coming soon, it's, but we're just was, saying it's it been a whole year, list. you know. Yeah. First on you our know. list. So. Yeah, yeah. So one of you tell Arthur and I about what was the sort of guiding spirit to this next book which i am so looking forward to because i love cooking on the fire so it was meant to be a restaurant book it was meant to be a book of recipes from honey and smoke our grill house and when we came to do it we said well does the world really need another restaurant book and we couldn't in good faith say yes we couldn't justify Uh, it and we said let's take a step back and let's revisit sort of the impulse and the inspiration to Honey and Smoke, to the restaurant, and go back to all the grill houses that we love back home, back east. And then we say, why don't we take it a step further and, you know, travel to more places and see more traditions and other things and bring them back home to us. So it's a sort of, uh, so we it's a kind of travel cookery recipe hybrid i guess fabulous like a sort of journal it is a yeah for us it's a journal of this these kind of trips i mean and to a lot of the places we had been before some of them it was our first visits and the idea was to just explore and record and you know try and give an essence of what this is all about because it's an essence of a of a of a way of eating of a hospitality of a sensibility of food so it's kind of recording all of that at the same time. And so what you mean by it not being a restaurant book is it's it's not using kind of techniques that are only uh, applicable if you've got sort of incredible burners and all that kind of thing. So it's much more homespun than that in a sense and realistic, I guess. Absolutely. All you need is like some charcoal and a little grill and we, we're not even too excited about what that grill that is. It can be like a barrel with a couple of holes and just for a bit of ventilation, or it can be a pit in the ground. Uh, it can also, we've also given options on how to do it. Yeah, you don't even need to have like an outside space because, you know, we for the longest time, we still, we don't have a, a garden. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we love 
grilling and we love grilled food. And in our case, we had to open a restaurant for it. But <laughs> for the longest time, we, we would just, you know, kind of adapt for our home kitchen. So, How do you avoid that thing? I used to live in a National Trust property that whenever we cooked bacon, uh, the fire brigade turned outside, <laughs> outside <laughs> our back door. How do you avoid the conflagration, the smoke, if you're doing it in an interior setting? We have a very bad habit. We, I don't, we probably, it's not legal what we're doing. But we do have a kind of through breeze with the, you know, north and south facing windows. So we open those. Okay. And we do have cling film on our fire detectors. Oh, yeah. Do you, or a sock. We do. <laughs> yeah. And it, does, it really, doesn't always help. Like the, the it's, it's, It still goes off more often than it not. It still goes off. But we just need to be very quick, you know, fanning it before the fire brigade arrives. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so tell us a little bit about your journey and your sort of, maybe maybe one of you talk about your sort of favorite experience. But, but one thing I, I want to say just before that is that um, any of you who don't know Honey & Co and the cooking of Itamar and Serret, you can definitely say that they are in my club of the anti-tweezer chef brigade. And what I mean <laughs> is that, I have a real antipathy to the plate that has been done with tweezers where you've got a tiny, perfect little sprig of chive and the most perfect one borage flour and then all that horrible sort of muck on the plate in a sort of, in, <laughs> in a sweep. Uh, there's this hearty food. It's kind of more like street food with the best flavors. It's robust and it's, it's sort of incredibly intense and wonderful and couldn't be less fussy. I just I just want to say that you know can we have the anti tweezers can we have it on like a badge yeah. t-shirts yeah. tote bags <laughs> we want to join the movement yeah. you're you're definitely leaders of the movement I'd say well it's that yeah it's definitely not our style to be too fastidious about food and we kind of believe in the the joy of just enjoying a nice honest meal and if you can eat it with your hands even better yeah. uh, that's kind of probably the the biggest part which is the joy about traveling around the middle east and the levant is that so many people understand our inclination to eat everything we eat with our fingers but uh, in terms of experiences we had some really amazing things but to me still uh, there was one day in jordan that just stuck in my mind as like the, absolutely the most magical day and we had spent uh, the morning in a farmer's market and it's just a local market where everyone just sells, everyone goes and buys their things and we bought some amazing tomatoes and onions and a bit of chili and we, then we drove up into the mountains into like a shepherd's hut and built a fire and cooked this very traditional local dish called uh, galiat bandura, it's like a tomato stew. Uh, but cooking it on the fire kind of made it just a bit smoky and really delicious. And we were in this meadow of green and it just smelled amazing. And there were goats running around. And it really, it was just an absolutely magical day. And it was spring. So there was, you know, flowers everywhere, little yeah. black irises. and, and Oh, yeah. Hermodactylus tuberosa. <laughs> As you said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And are, are you both writing your books as you're traveling? This sounds to me to be almost a very personal memoir between you both of your love of, of food and where you come from. And are you writing it together while you're both traveling or do you then get home and, and go, right, you write that chapter and I'll do this? Or is it a complete partnership? Mm, we, we split the labor. So 
Mm. We always try to take record of, of where we are. And, and this book is also, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, travel and a lot of experience that um, came from, from long before, from, you know, that we traveled without a photographer. There's a lot of experience there. So some of it's from memory and some of it's from notes and pictures that we take. Mm. And then when we come back, Sarit usually does the recipes or, you know, ad- adapts the recipes. And if there's any kind of story that we want to tell with it, then I will do that. Mm. So it's kind of a very equal division and labor. And, and, and actually, on from a very selfish uh, standpoint, it's really, really nice to have this kind of record yes. of your travels and that. But also, I hope, you know, people find value and joy in that. Mm. And does it then inform the menu in the restaurants? Um, I mean, obviously, Honey and Smoke, but your other two as well. Do you find that the menus evolve around the book that you're producing? So you're doing more and more. Obviously, you've always been cooking in Honey and Smoke on the fire. But does it influence it? I mean, definitely a lot of the dishes as as we kind of came back from these trips. And look, we did all these travels in 2019 because obviously 2020 mm. Mm. Everything was in lockdown, so we had finished by, uh, we had had all our material with us before lockdown started. So over the kind of years of honey and smoke, a few dishes as we travel, when we come back, we're like, oh my God, we, you know, we ate this, we really have to introduce it and it has to become part of what we're doing. And then actually in lockdown now, because the nature of the restaurants has been so different and we kind of pivoted towards these you know, supper club boxes that we do on Friday and Saturday. So we very much took inspiration from our trips and themed them around the country we were at and trying to kind of recreate a full dinner that would make someone feel like they managed to travel to Jordan with us or Egypt with us or, you know, or or Israel. And we kind of did, took a lot of inspiration for that from these trips. And that was fun to kind of re-explore as we were writing the book and editing it to kind of also introduce these meals to the restaurant. You've had, you've had one of these boxes, didn't you, I Sarah? have, and the playlist, which yeah. we yes. re- religiously played throughout the whole evening. And it was marvellous. <laughs> you know, I was transported back to the Cretan Mountains uh, with, yeah. with your incredible playlist. You know, it's stimulating to the senses on all levels and very, yeah, very good fun. good fun. I can thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> good. I mean, it's it's been really nice because it's kind of the only way we've had to interact with our guests over this yeah. year of not seeing them in person. So it was nice for people to listen to some music and occasionally there were little games or little extras. You know, each meal had something different or has still something different. So it was quite a nice way to like see people like, post pictures on Instagram or just talk about it or send us emails back saying, oh, we kind of made the house look like a Greek taverna. We made, you know, or we kind of sat on the floor and ate. Different people have done different things. So it's quite nice. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, And Isamar, tell us your favorite experience of that whole travel time and that informed this book. Mm, It's really hard to tell. I I mean, it's like Sarit said, I loved our time in Jordan. I was so it was way beyond anything I expected. It's, it's just absolutely a magical country with the most lovely people. I mean, you cannot be treated nicer anywhere on earth, I don't think, or I haven't. Yeah, I had a wonderful trip there too. I've completely fallen in love with it as well. I agree. It's really hard not to. Yeah. It's really, really hard not to. It's such a magical country. But it's interesting that you've left out Jerusalem where you come from, we don't did. you? Yeah, yeah, we did. I don't know why. 
we were trying not to go to like our hometowns, but to mm. try and see something. Yeah, and we wanted to go to second cities. We wanted to go mm. to places that are less traveled. Mm. Yeah. You know, in in Greece, we we went to Thessaloniki that we, we didn't know at all. Which is a wonderful, just a lovely city. Yeah. But my favorite experience, I would say, southern Turkey, yeah. Adana mm. and Gaziantep, are just incredible cities incredible yeah. and, and we had been to istanbul before of course and the food there is amazing but we really wanted to see different parts of turkey and to kind of go see more the i suppose the the influences maybe of, of syria and stuff we were quite close to the border with the aleppo it's quite interesting for us to see how the food changes according to geographic kind of locations as well yeah 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 and um in terms of what the fire gives you I mean, could one of you maybe talk to us about, you know, beyond obviously the smoke, but the whole sort of feeling of cooking on the fire and the taste and the and the depth that it gives you to the to the food that you're making? Well, I think that the main thing is what really brought it up for me is, you know, we, we're very accustomed to, you know, going to the kitchen, turn on the gas, da 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 da. We cook our dinner, so it's it's a very quick and I guess more efficient. Uh, use of our time and our energy but you know especially when you know if we go back to southern turkey to adana that it's really you know it feels like the birthplace of food you know mm-hmm. everything there is amazing and everybody is so serious about the food mm-hmm. and we we were there for the eve of ramadan and they were lighting up these massive grills you know mm-hmm. they, they were going to feed so many people for such a long time and they were starting the grills earlier because you know usually they would have it from lunch but it takes time you know it kind of takes time takes preparation you have you're conscious of how you use energy not just as a source of heat but just your time and your time spent cooking and your time in the kitchen so the first thing that i came to see is kind of a difference in pace before even the flavor, before even the cooking, just taking a little bit longer and, you know, pausing a little bit on the time you're cooking. And in, in terms of flavor, yeah, there's something really special happens when, you know, food meets direct fire and, and grill. It's something that's really, really difficult to recreate, especially, I think, vegetable and fruit, which is kind of underused in, in barbecues, I think, really, really magical. Stuff, I mean, they, they I really do benefit. So like the kind of caramelization and the heat and the smoke, especially when you're using fruit and vegetables, brings out something really different and really intense in in, in vegetables and, and especially in fruit, which is surprising. But And we saw more use of fruit than we thought we would see, actually, because uh, when we were growing up, for example, it wasn't super traditional to... To have lots of fruit on the grill. I mean, definitely we would have the aubergine. This is like the compulsory kind of uh, thing that ends up on every barbecue since we've been kids. You know, there's always an aubergine going on to a barbecue. And there's always this kind of standard thing that you would get on a kebab, like, a, you know, some onion, some tomato. That always goes on the grill. It's and then peppers. The it is the best bit, you know, but peppers and stuff like that. So all these were given and we knew all of that and we weren't expecting to be surprised by it. But then... When we were traveling, then using things like loquats, uh, apricots, figs, what else? Watermelon, you know, grilled watermelon. It's a revelation, you know, wow. and it's 
you kind of think, why are you putting something that's so like 90% water on a grill? Yes. How does that make sense? But it really intensifies the flavor and it really creates something so special. And literally then a slice, a sort of yeah. a, a yeah. segment, just flat on the hot, already hot grill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. It sounds weird, but it's so delicious. You you don't need tweezers as well. (laughs) (laughs) No, you need tongs. It's tongs over tweezers. It is tongs. Tongs are are important for a barbecue. You can't. (laughs) And then would you serve it with something, a feta or something, or just just straight? Well, we do a dish with prawns and feta and watermelon, and it just works really, really well. Oh, yeah, that you can fabulous. not do the prawns, but it's really nice with it. Yeah. Okay, that sounds very good. And given that we are grow cook eat arrange, and so we're about growing, can we move on to vegetables? I mean, so you've mentioned aubergines, but are there other others that are sort of surprising or things that you might do with an aubergine that's surprising and fun? I mean, to me, definitely all of these. Uh, are they nightshades? All of them, like tomato, maybe tomatoes yes. aren't. I don't, you know, like the they kind of really come into their own with a bit of smoke because they're so juicy and so uh, fleshy as a kind of fruit vegetable thing because they yeah. have the seeds. Then the, the smoke really kind of brings out all the sugars in them, really intensifies the flavors. It works really well with the produce that also, because, you know, sometimes tomatoes in, in the UK don't have the same flavor profile as the ones we grew they're up awful. on. <laughs> they can be. I'm, I'm trying to be polite about the local. You know, there's an army of uh, allotment owners now uh, up in arms coming to you with their tweezers. Allotment tomatoes are fine. I'm, I'm on about the supermarket tomatoes. I had an argument yesterday. I don't want to see a tomato at this time of year. I don't know about you because they're just not in season. I mean, supermarket tomatoes are horrible. No. Uh, but you can get some really good Italian ones. I mean, you need sunshine for tomatoes, yeah. for mm. good tomatoes. Yeah. And in, in our restaurants, we use Sicilian mostly. Even winter Sicilian tomatoes are really delicious, like uh, mm. marindas or camones, which are kind of specifically like winter varieties mm. that come from like Sicily in January, February. You kind of don't expect them, but they're really sweet, really delicious. Mm. Mm. And then, of course, kind of waiting for like the more exciting seasons of like the San Marzanos and stuff that, you know, but we don't use a lot of British tomatoes, let's say. No. We do, mm-hmm. sadly, you know, <laughs> yeah. we do use uh, ones that either come from Turkey or from southern mm. Italy. Yeah. You need and sunshine. I mean, yes. some vegetables yeah. just need sunshine. There's no... No two ways about it. Yeah. Have you struggled to find those? Did you have to find a, a supply to get those or were you able to find them at the market? We, we we have you know we have our suppliers yeah yeah they they bring trucks from Europe so having good week. relationships with Pacific growers yeah. in those countries yeah. are essential for your restaurants to have those flavors and the vitality which is in a way it, it's 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 almost um, crazy but it is what it is mm. yeah. but but um I mean you know I grow tomatoes and um, my tomatoes are very tasty actually <laughs> I'm and- sure they are. <laughs> And it is down to variety a bit. I mean, just like Sarah has said. And I think we mustn't discourage people from growing tomatoes. I mean, particularly if you have, uh, you know, literally a cold frame or a greenhouse or a polytunnel, you, you can change the temperature that they're in by five degrees. And that really does make a difference to the sweetness. So in July and August, uh, I would like to argue that UK grown tomatoes can be as good as Sicilian, but it just it's much shorter season. That's all. 
No, and also cho- choosing a good variety, I think, is so important. You know, like the it's like with everything. Yeah. I mean, we have the same argument about cucumbers. You can have amazing cucumbers, or you can have rubbish cucumbers. You just yeah. need to yeah. grow the right thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sarah, but can we ask about growing tomatoes in pots for the gardenless? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> I mean, I, in in all our trials, I think it is quite difficult to find a super tasty tomato in a pot, which is such a shame. The uh, honest truth is, I think the one of the best ones is the Texan micro cherry tomato, which is literally the wild Texan, I mean, it, and it grows wild there. But they're tiny, and so they wouldn't work for your recipes really i mean they're the size of a current but they are very they're like sugar bombs and they are very prolific in a pot but tumbler tom is sort of okay but it's not the best in terms of flavor unfortunately it tends to be the cordons which you can't really grow easily in a window box or in a container i mean you can but they mustn't be in a windy spot because they'll blow away they'll blow off your <laughs> okay. window lid because you know they get to sort of five foot we have potentially the windiest balcony yeah. in, in the country. <laughs> that is the problem with tomatoes. In, on a, it, I, I, had, I had tomatoes when I lived in London in a window box and they, they blew away every year. So I think you do need the more compact ones. So t- um, Tumblr Tom, but it doesn't have the greatest flavor, I'm afraid. It's okay, but it's not exceptional. I do have to say that this aspect of putting them on the grill improves them even if they are not amazing. And yeah. this is the main kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Because what it does is it dehydrates the water content out of them and intensifies the sugars. Yeah. So in essence, you're giving it what sunshine would do, but on the fire. Yeah. Plus it has obviously this amazing aspect of adding a smokiness and that improves their flavor immensely. So I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. You should just take into account that you might need a touch more salt yeah. or do this kind of very chefy trick, which is a mix of a bit of vinegar and sugar to pop those flavors so you kind of use that as an intensifier for slightly duller tomatoes so will you um will you give us a recipe for that that i can put in the podcast notes that would be really good sure yeah and then on to aubergines which is something i would move on to uh, that you can grow on your balcony um and and um, yeah yeah really (laughs) definitely in london you can definitely grow something like money maker or the asian one which is very quick to cook but you may not like that quite so much because you'll want those big fat juicy ones that can go on the fire but yeah no definitely money maker i like the asian ones as well yeah they're just much quicker to cook aren't they for stir fries but will you talk us through uh, uh, you know your sort of or one of your favorite recipes from the book using aubergines one of you so i mean we kind of come from the land of the burnt aubergine or, you know, all of the Levant is really big on, you know, taking an aubergine, burning them and scraping the pulp. And then this is what you get for baba ganoush and also many other dishes. So filling for pastries and things like that. It's kind of like a Middle Eastern staple. Yeah. One of the dishes that we have in honey and smoke that we can never take off the menu. It's kind of like... You know, it's just an aubergine, really, that we char on the grill until it's completely soft and collapsy, if that's a word. I don't think mm, it collapsy. is. Collapsy. I like that. I don't know how you say it. Until no, I like it completely collapsy. collapses. Collapsy. It's nice. <laughs> we cut it in half or open it a little bit, dress the flesh with a mixture of lemon juice, garlic and chili, so really potent marinade, a little scoop of tahini on top. And in the restaurant, we take an egg yolk, and take coal to it so it scorches a little bit so another element of smoke but also creamy and uh rich like a good egg yolk is and this is definitely 
hard-boiled at that point? No, no raw. Soft, no. Like a raw egg. Yeah. Okay. Like a raw egg. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and you just take a charcoal to it and just sort of sear it a little bit. So it kind of, it just, it doesn't cook, but it just sets a little bit and gets a little bit smoky. It's really nice. Gosh. And so, but uh, but the protein part would then be completely runny still, no? Or have yep. you taken out the... It's just the yolk. We just use the yolk. Just the yolk, and then yeah. Okay. Okay. Just the yolk, and we char the top part of the yolk, so it's kind of between what you would get in a soft-boiled egg and uh, and a bit of smoky, so it's really delicious. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. And where did you come across that, or were you brought up on that technique? I think it comes from Itamal's obsession with eggs. I don't think it comes yeah, from I, any I technique. Love, okay. I love a good egg. Like, okay. even a not great egg, I love eggs. So uh, I think good. we just wanted to make the dish a little bit more uh, sort of rich, yeah. And more kind of uh, main coursey, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and aubergines and eggs is something that always, I think, work really, really well together. And um, given that we're in May, shall we just finish with you talking us through your sort of, I mean, if you were to cook dinner for you two tonight, what you might cook that involved the fire at this seasonal moment in the year? So not tomatoes, not aubergines. No, but. I'm waiting like with bated breath for apricots because apricots on the grill are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we we do this amazing recipe of uh, juja chicken. It's like chicken in a um, yogurt and spice marinade that just goes on the grill and then you grill apricots with it and it kind of becomes like between a barbecue sauce kind of, you know, smoky mm. apricot thing, which is absolutely delicious. So I'm just waiting for the first ones to kind of cool, pop man. up in the in the markets. And could they yeah. still be quite bullety when you do that, or do they need to be going soft? No, yeah, they, no. they can be pretty firm. And yeah. Uh, yeah, the fire really helps kind of soften them and bring out those flavors. And you want them a bit sharp because this is about a savory kind of course. It's almost like what, like a chutney, but in a yeah. in a great form. Yeah, so they, they turn into like a smoky, sour, sweet chutney. Not apricot jam. Yeah. No. No. Not the sugar. And so, are you cutting them and taking out the kernel, or are you? Yeah. You, right. Yeah. Just okay. cut in half. Okay. Yeah. Just that a bit of olive great. oil, and yeah. Wow. And the chicken is just very gently marinated in, in yogurt, saffron, some easy spices. Yeah. And then put on the fire as well. Yeah, yeah. That sounds fabulous. So, Itamar, what would be your dream for for the next month or so, using the fire? My, my dream dish. Your dream um, dish. This time of year is a little bit tricky because nothing really comes to season, but the last of the winter produce maybe is still around. I don't know. First courgettes are beautiful on the grill. Yeah. The I tiny think. little finger courgettes that are so good that you can even have them as as they are. Yeah. We always, you know, at the beginning of the season in Honey and Smoke, we have two weeks of the tiny, tiny, tiny courgettes. That we just simply grill on the grill there, obviously. A little bit of uh, fresh olive oil, sea salt, and we do this pistachio <laughs> dipping sauce almost. Like a pistachio mm. tahini to go with it. And it's so, so, so good. So we're waiting mm. on those. Hopefully we can have it for reopening. Thanks for listening to this delicious episode of Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange. On our next episode, we'll be talking about hardy annuals, direct sowing, and also edible flowers, ice cubes, and all the mumps 
through the year of how to eat them. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahoven.com.